This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Invisible Heat. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Our today's case takes us to January 2017. In the days following New Year's, 18-year-old Brittany Covington starts live streaming on Facebook. But this app, usually intended for casual posts between friends and family, will soon become evidence of crime. Brittany films as three other people verbally and physically assault an 18-year-old white man diagnosed with schizophrenia. The attackers, who are all African-American, kick and punch the victim repeatedly, shouting, fuck Trump and fuck white people. Numerous times, the attackers threaten to kill the victim and at some point, they shove his head in a toilet bowl and tell him to drink the water. Though the live stream only lasts about 30 minutes, the actual abuse lasts for hours. But when the victim finally escapes and the perpetrators are arrested, the country erupts in debate. Was this hate crime motivated by Trump, race, or something else entirely? That's what we'll discuss today. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Heat, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truths behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right, Sadia. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal, as always, is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and the complexities of these situations, whether or not these crimes can be considered hate crimes. While incidents such as this one are important to discuss, they can also be challenging to listen to. And above all, we want to make sure that everybody is safe when they're listening to these episodes. With that, Sadia, how was your week? My week is good, Asad, but today I'm in a mood to rant. Can I do that? What's happening? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's been building up, Asad, and I thought why not share it with our listeners You know, I've been thinking, we've been working on this podcast for more than a year. We work really hard, you and I, and we have this incredible, incredible team of scriptwriters, editors. And I keep thinking, look, I get it. We are not the wanderers of the world, but we put in a lot of effort. So I'm asking our listeners, if you like what you hear can you please share it with a few friends? <laughs> you want to be you, more popular is what, it, is yeah, what you're saying. <laughs> not popular, I said. I want these stories to be heard more. Yeah, they're important stories, that's for sure. These are important stories. And sometimes I do get frustrated, I said, because we create this great content and I feel like 
so many more people should be listening to it. So I am asking our listeners to share if they can, if they work in media, if they are affiliated with a publication, maybe they could write something nice about Invisible Hate. So that's my rant. I've been thinking about it. I was feeling <laughs> it. It was building up. And I was like, just let it out. Let it out. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. How was your week? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my week was okay. You know, I think Sadia, so as you know, Isha is about 10 months now and she got her first big sickness this week. So we've been Aww. dealing with that. Yeah, it's just so sad. You know, these little, little, little kids with the fevers and, you know, as first time parents, we are concerned and some like say overly concerned but uh <laughs> she's doing better now but that was kind of the big drama in our life uh the last week or so so a little sleep deprived uh but she is better and on the mend i said i'm so glad isha is feeling better and look it happens and parents freak out i used to freak out a lot i still do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so you know once a parent always a parent 100 so sally with that should we get started first it's important to clarify that the 18 year old victim in this case has remained unnamed across all social media outlets to protect his privacy we'll refer to him as the victim It's December 31st, 2016, a few days before the Facebook live stream, and we are in Schaumburg, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. For New Year's Eve, the victim is planning to hang out with a friend from high school, a guy named Jordan Hill. And while it's unclear whether the victim or Jordan suggested hanging out on this day, it's clear that this is a voluntary meetup. So the victim's parents drop him off at a McDonald's about 20 miles away from their home. At the McDonald's, Jordan eventually picks up the victim in what authorities will later learn a stolen van. But from here, the details get a bit blurry. Jordan and the victim drive around for a day or two in the van, which again doesn't seem too suspicious yet although i said i will say this if my kid was doing that i would be worried yeah i definitely want to know where my kid is they even spend a night sleeping inside the vehicle hmm. which to me is a little strange but between december 31st and january 1st the victim continues communication with his parents. So the parents don't start to worry until sometime on January 2nd, when suddenly they can no longer get in touch with their son. Some sources report that the parents may have even contacted Jordan, but their concerned messages, according to some reports, anger Jordan. Shortly after, rather than returning the victim back home, Jordan drives to an apartment on West Lexington Street in Chicago. This is the home of 24-year-old Denisha Govington and her 18-year-old sister, Brittany. 18-year-old Tesfaye Cooper is at the apartment as well. Though they may know each other from school, it's unclear how exactly Jordan knows the sisters and Tesfaye. 
It's also unclear whether or not Jordan had always been planning to come to this apartment. But at the Covington apartment, the tone of the past few days switches quickly. According to the victim, he and Jordan start play fighting. And somehow this escalates until the attackers restrain and gag the victim against his will. Oh dear. Yep. This is when the hours-long verbal and physical assault begins. About 25 minutes of that assault was uploaded to Facebook by Brittany Covington. And while the original video has long since been taken down, a few news sources have released censored clips from the footage. In the video, the victim's face is blurred, but you can hear and see the abuse. At one point, one of the attackers pulls out a knife and begins slashing the victim's sweatshirt. He then brings the knife to the victim's head, where he cuts his hair and slices off a piece of his scalp. Sadia, I just, there's so much about this that is just baffling. Uh, You know, obviously the first to attack a friend of yours like this and live stream it on Facebook. I mean, that is next level sadistic. I'm I'm speechless. Absolutely, Asad. And Brittany Covington, who is responsible for filming and posting the assault, often turns the camera back to herself. She laughs and smiles while the beating continues. And that, to me, is so fucked up, Asad. I agreed. And then you can hear the perpetrator's commentary become racially targeted. Shouting at the victim, they tell him to say, fuck white people and fuck Trump. Meanwhile, the victim's parents have officially reported their son missing to the police. Their fear comes to a head when they receive a text from someone who says they are holding their son captive. Oh man, Sadia, what would you do if you got that text? Oh my gosh, I said, don't even ask. I don't want to think about it. Now, of course, we know who these people are, right? Jordan Hill and the other perpetrators then attempt to hold the victim for ransom, allegedly demanding 300 from the parents. I said, now, all of this is pretty messed up, right? 100%. But to do all of this for 300, like, what the hell? I don't get this. I do not get this at all. Well, clearly it wasn't for the money, right? Like, I I don't know. Maybe for them, $300 was a lot of money or is a lot of money. But yeah, you're right. Certainly for to go through all this trouble and to do what they're doing to then demand $300. Like, it just, yeah, again, baffling to me. The parents don't pay the money. And who knows if the perpetrators would have released the victim even with the cash, right? That's always a risk. Luckily, the parents are already in contact with the police who uncovered the Facebook video pretty quickly. It's unclear how police thought to check Facebook in the first place or if someone alerted them to the video. I think it's the latter, Asad. The kind of video this is, probably somebody saw it and alerted the police to it. Right. 
Of course, if you saw this, hopefully you would report it to your local police right away. Right. But what's important is that there is direct video evidence of the people involved, unlike many cases we've seen on this podcast. So police can identify the assailants pretty quickly once they see the live stream. At least this means a quick arrest. I think, Sadia, one of the benefits of living in this new world of technology is that there's more and more video evidence of crimes and hate crimes in particular. And so, you know, obviously I'm not advocating for a full police state, but it's nice when we have this video evidence to corroborate what's happening to so many victims, you know, so yeah. Yep, I hear you. Meanwhile, after hours of abuse, a neighbor living downstairs from the Covington sisters complains to them about the noise. Tanisha and Brittany go downstairs to confront the neighbor and they even try to kick down her door. But it's too late, the neighbor has already called the police. Because of the commotion with the neighbor, the victim is able to escape, thank God, wearing only a tank top and shorts. It's now January 3rd, the dead of winter in Chicago, so you can imagine it's freezing yeah, outside. For sure. When Chicago police arrive in response to the noise complaint, they find the victim walking around outside bloody and disoriented. They recognize him as the missing man, alert the parents, and then take him to the hospital to treat his injuries. Police arrested the four perpetrators shortly after identifying the victim. Yeah, sadly, I mean, to reiterate, it's just a crazy story to think that the victim and this guy Jordan were friends from school, and if not friends, just you know, classmates who were close enough to hang out you know, on New Year's, and then for him to be the victim of such a heinous crime that is also live streamed it's just atrocious um do we know anything more about the victim and the people who attacked him unfortunately i said the information here is pretty limited we know that both jordan who is the victim's supposed friend and tess faye cooper both had prior arrests for other incidents jordan was arrested in 2015 on various criminal charges But it is unclear if he was ever officially convicted of his charges. As for Tess Faye, his prior arrest was for drug possession charges and Tess Faye's brother would later state that he believes Tess Faye was in fact high at the time of the attack. We were not able to find information from the police or the court that attests to that. As for sisters, Tanisha and Brittany, one source suggests that they too had prior arrests years before for various charges. But beyond Jordan's friendship with the victim, nothing really explains why the three other perpetrators were involved with this victim specifically. So we don't have a lot of information. As for the victim himself, there isn't much information about him either likely to further protect his privacy, but there is one detail I really want to emphasize on. The victim has both schizophrenia and ADHD. Oh, wow. The perpetrators knew of his disorders at the time of the attack because they allegedly made references to his mental capacities while attacking Mm. him. And for police and prosecutors, this information is pretty important to the case. Why, you may ask? Well, disability is protected under hate crime statutes. So if the perpetrators targeted him because of his psychiatric diagnosis, 
that would be protected under hate crime law in Illinois. Mm. I said this is important, especially since people with disabilities experience disproportionate levels of abuse compared to their able-bodied counterparts. A New York Times article highlights that people with disabilities are twice as likely as people without disabilities to face violent crimes. This disparity is even more drastic for people with mental disabilities specifically. These people may have less access to law enforcement or they may have trouble communicating their abuse. Yeah, this is something uh, we haven't talked a lot about on this show in terms of people with disabilities, how they're victims of hate crime. So I'm glad that we're highlighting, you know, this in this case. Sadia, why don't we take a quick break and we come back, we'll talk more about the hate crime aspect of this case. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Sadia, we should talk more about the hate crime aspect of this case. There's a disability angle, yes, but the perpetrators were making racial comments regarding the victim too, right? Absolutely, yes. As you remember, that four perpetrators who are African-American were making racial comments about the victim who is white. As I mentioned before, those comments included things like fuck white people, which the victim was forced to repeat. Obviously, that's pretty racially motivated. Even if the initial kidnapping had nothing to do with race, those comments are pretty alarming. That's for sure. But there's another part to this. Shortly after the perpetrators were arrested and the general public found out about the case, people started attaching the perpetrators to the Black Lives Matter movement and politics. Now, if I said you remember, 2016 to 2017 was a pretty intense period. Hands up! Stop killing black people! Trump was elected, even though he was not technically in office yet, his elections sparked societal tensions, as we all remember. And even though the Black Lives Matter movement was officially coined back in 2013, the murder of Philando Castile by a police officer reinvigorates the movement. Black Lives Matter is fresh on American minds around this time, so some claimed that the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter somehow encouraged the four perpetrators to lash out in violence against a white person. Hmm. Right-wing internet took this story and ran with it. People started using the hashtag BLM kidnapping to describe the incident and before long the hashtag was trending on Twitter. Members of so-called white advocacy organizations used this incident to defend the need for white nationalism. But to clarify, the perpetrators were not an official part of the BLM movement and Chicago police confirmed that. Activists affiliated with BLM Chicago denounced the Facebook live torture as well, but they also denounced the BLM kidnapping hashtag itself as a ridiculous response to this event. Yeah, agreed. Of course, the incident was an awful hate crime and there's no excuse for it. But blaming or even 
just linking the violence to a movement that had no connections to it. That's wrong, Asif. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. It, you know, I think they're making a stretch and they're trying to make that connection for their own political purposes. And obviously it was successful to some degree. Asif, I have said this so many times on other platforms, my other podcasts as well, that an entire racial or cultural group should not be held responsible for the actions of a few. Those four perpetrators do not and cannot represent the black community and the statement Black Lives Matter isn't any less true or any less relevant because of this incident. And I really, really want listeners to sit with it and think about it. Sadhya, I think what you said is great. Thanks for, for sharing that. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll have our discussion about whether or not this should be categorized as a hate crime. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. Sadia, so the question of the hour, as always, is should this be considered a hate crime? Asad, to me, it seems like a hate crime because of racially motivated comments, because of the extent of violence, and not just hate crime based on race, but also on victims' disability. We've said this before, I will say this again, that does not in any way reflect on the black community in the United States. But if we look at this one case as a standalone act of violence, to me, it pretty much looks like a hate crime. Yes, Ali, I think I'm inclined to agree with you, though. I, I do think it was more about race than it was about his mental capacities, though I, I know that they made references to the, to that while they were attacking him. But if we kind of ask the questions that we do, of you know, in other cases, like, would this have happened to someone who was of a different race? And I, th- I think the answer would have been no. You know, I don't know if we'll, we'll ever know. But I, I do think that this should have been investigated as a hate crime based on the, the language that they were using as they were attacking him. And, and I think, you know, could argue as well because of the references to his mental capacity as well. They were attacking him as well. So I would say that this should have been charged and treated as, as a hate crime. Yeah, so that I, I agree. So, Sadia, what do we know about the victim and the perpetrators? Like, where are they all now? So I said all four perpetrators pleaded guilty and were charged and convicted of a hate crime, aggravated kidnapping and battery. Jordan Hill received an additional charge of possession of a stolen vehicle, which is the van he picked up the victim in. He received the most time with eight years in prison. Tess Faye Cooper received seven years. Tanisha Covington received three years. And her sister, Brittany, only received four years of probation and 200 hours of community service with no jail time. Unfortunately, we don't know about the well-being of the victim beyond a few words from his family. Take a listen. This should never happen. We're so grateful for all the prayers and efforts that led to the safe return of our brother. He's doing, he's doing uh, well, as, uh, as well as he could be. And even now, seven years later, we can only hope that the victim is still alive and well and has recovered from the trauma of this incident. So Asad, for me, this also raises ethical questions about social media and what people are allowed to post or not post. 
Do you think there should be an editor constantly monitoring Facebook to make sure material like this isn't posted? Or sometimes violence on social media isn't a glorification like it was in this case, right? Sometimes it's important to show brutality of others. And so I'm confused whether we should have a no violence policy or when is it okay to show violence? What do you think? Yeah, no, these are great questions that I also continue to grapple with. I mean, I think obviously the crime itself was egregious, but I think it goes to a next level when it's streamed live, right? Because then you're looking for an audience, you're looking for people to interact with it. I think there's also a delineation of it being posted later, right? Something that's recorded then posted versus something that's actually being shared live. I generally fall into the most open speech there is available. But yeah, when it's promoting violence, especially in the moment, or yeah, advocating for violence against another, especially in the moment, I think that there needs to be some guardrails. I just don't know how you, as a tech company, can control that. But, you know, the video evidence is important evidence in this case, and, and also things that researchers should be able to study years from now to kind of like understand the mindset of the perpetrators and, and stuff like that. I agree, Asit. All those points are valid. And it's tricky, right? It's tricky for tech companies. It's tricky if we believe in, you know, freedom of speech, expression, how far do we go? When does it become harmful? All those things are so important and all of us are grappling with it. Yeah. And I think what is okay for one set of people might not be okay with another. Sadly, I'll share, you know, one of my favorite pastimes on YouTube is to watch close call videos. And these are car accidents. Or oh my gosh, I said. Potential car accidents that at the end, like the, the person is saved or like they get into an accident and people walk away. But there's definitely videos all across Twitter and YouTube of buildings exploding, car accidents that happen. And so like, these are also deaths that are are very violent that hmm. are on the web that people are watching as a form of entertainment and as a form of news as well. And so like, I don't envy the the tech companies and, and the moderators who are making the decisions. I, I think it's really hard to determine what is allowed and what's not allowed. And then what raises to the level of, you know, in the public interest. We can even talk about stuff that's coming out of the Middle East right now in Gaza. Right. There are a lot of victims there and, and you're seeing crimes happen live. And you're seeing people in the IDF posting videos live of things that they're doing. Like, is that okay? Do we want to censor that? I'm, as I mentioned before, more for like more information is better because, you know, then it's out there. But it's very complicated. I would love to know what our listeners think about all this kind of stuff and the ethical dilemmas that we've talked about in this episode. So please email us. Um, we'd love to know more. Absolutely. Email us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. Thank you once again for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us, as Asad said, your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back, as always, next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. 
Until then, I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Samia Khan. Take care. Asad, what is play fighting? <laughs> oh, play fighting is probably what I think I'm doing with my sister and where she thinks I'm fighting. I think it's just, you know, goofing around a little bit. Ah, okay. Yeah, I do that with my siblings all yeah. the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.